0: Welcome to Greenblut FM session number 11. My name is Christoph Dahn and I'm your host again at Greenblut FM. Our guest today will take us on a trip back in time. I'm looking forward to have a conversation with one of the early pioneers of the ethical fashion movement, Mark Bloom, also known as Joe Komodo from the London based brand Komodo. Mark started Komodo as a tool that should offer him the possibility to travel to places like Bali and Kathmandu and live an independent lifestyle. This seemed to be the right decision because Komodo is around for a long time and grew into a solid fashion brand. It is now well known as one of the pioneers of ethical fashion. But before we head over to Mark, I would like to introduce a novelty on our website. After we have started the podcast and got a great feedback from you, the listeners, we would like to test video. We just started some small explainer videos on how to grow your ethical clothing brand in a crowded market. You can find the videos in our blog section. I would be happy if you could leave some comments and send us feedback. But now I'm curious about the story behind and welcome Mark Bloom. Welcome to Mark Bloom from Komodo. Mark has founded Komodo back in 1988, so he's a real pioneer. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Christopher. How are you doing? Hi. All right. So yes. you're in sunny London.
1: Yeah, indeed. It's always sunny here.
0: <laughs> like we all know.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> Mark, so you already started in 1988, so you have a big story to tell to our listeners. So. Perhaps we just jump back into the early stages of your brand, and uh, let's start at the time when the brand was not er- already started. How how did you get the idea to to start Komodo? And perhaps would you first could you describe your brand? So the brand Komodo.
1: Oh well, um, I think today people describe us as. Uh as a eco or an ethical brand, a green brand—you know all the uh, various uh, words that are in our in our sector here. Um, you know, our, our objective is to make beautiful and easy to wear uh, fashion that we make sure we make from sustainable fabrics, natural fibres. Uh, that's you know, that's our. That's our rationale. We, when we set out to design a collection, we're always thinking, okay, what what would we really like to have and to wear, and how can we make it so that it's sustainable and and ethical? Mm-hmm. In the old days when we started out, uh, we, we nobody had thought uh, all these words ethical fashion, eco, green. Uh, these words didn't really exist. Even organic was not a word that you that you heard. It wasn't something you could buy in the supermarket. It was really you know. Be, before that time, almost. Yeah. Um, so actually, where we came from um, was what I guess you would call today kind of street fashion. Um, it was really all about the music, about Acid House that was going on at the time, which was a fantastic uh, kind of revolution, almost like a cultural revolution that was going on. And our story at the time was really all to do with the, the music. We had a lot of friends that were DJs. Um, we, we found uh, from in, in Bali and in Kathmandu, which is places where i had been uh, backpacking in my, you know, when I left school, I, I went backpacking. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were places that I'd been to. And um, the stuff, that the clothes that we found there or the fabrics that we found there were just so colorful and different. And, you know, really a whole new look that was completely different to what we had in, in Europe at the time. Mm-hmm. And so we just thought, Great, let's do something completely different and people loved it and it and it, it really worked best with the with the people that were into the music. And mm-hmm. so it was very much like a a look, you know, that was that was synonymous with the music. We were just part of that scene and it was very exciting.
0: So so you created initially the clothing for your for the music scene you loved so much?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You okay. know, we made we print we made smiley T shirts, you know, and yeah. uh I remember that time. <laughs> yeah, everybody has some memory, or you know, or the older you know, ones. Seen it. The older yeah, ones you know, we we basically said, okay, everybody loves smiley t-shirts. Then we there was the crazy surf shorts, and then we thought, well, let's make batik from from Indonesia, and let's do patchwork, and you know, oh, tie dye. You know, tie dye was something that was kind of brought back from the seventies, was a kind of hippie thing. But the way that we made tie dye in in Bali was really different to the way they made tie dye in America um and so we had a a different look to it but it fit it all fitted together to make a you know a fantastic scene and the, yeah, the so, music so, just carried it forward
0: yeah i would like to jump back to the time so so you were first traveling and then yeah. you had the idea for fashion or how, or how was it the timing how was well to be honest
1: the, the 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 fashion was really a vehicle that took us back to the to the countries that we wanted to to play in really, it wasn't that I had a huge passion for fashion, it was really that I just, you know, saw an opportunity to do something in these countries where previously I'd just been a backpacker and was just able to. You know, try I, I, even when I was backpacking, I was buying lots of stuff, and I—that's I, I, really how it started. Was I, I, you know, I don't know why. I just had an instinct. I just kept, you know, I saw this amazing stuff, and I thought, wow, you know, in London this would be great. And I come from London, and I come from, you know, you know, I knew Camden Market pretty well. I'd been in it, you know, loads of times as a kid. Just, you know. Mm -hmm. checking it out and whatever, and I just, you know, had in the back of my mind, I think that, wow, you know, I could sell this stuff on a stall in Camden Market. So that's what I did. I just kind of kept buying bits and bobs and things that I thought were interesting, not just clothing, but all kinds of, you know, souvenirs and clothing and bits for the house and, you know, kind of lifestyle Stuff and uh, that I you know, I kept shipping it back in boxes through the post office. You know, I'd yeah. fill up a box and, and
0: and how were you different from these other other stalls uh, who import stuff from India or from, from these countries? I think it was really popular in the 80s. Uh, in these, yeah, I mean, you know, I think I was pretty,
1: you know, we're talking 83, 84, 85, so it was pretty. Uh, I was you know, one of the first ones, you know, it was early days and there wasn't okay. so much stuff around, and I, was, I guess you know, everybody chose different things, so from the things that I picked. You know, even within Camden Market, which is kind of, you know, an epicenter of that kind of product, if you like, Mm -hmm. still I had something different and unique and, you know, and you learn how to make your stall nice and how to sell it and how to deal with the people and, um, you know, it works. It just works pretty well. But once I'd finished, once I'd sold it all, it was, you know, I hadn't hadn't thought, oh, I need to keep contact with all these people. You know, this is, you know, never mind email. This is before before fax machines, so, mm-hmm. you know, there was no way, you know, you know no one had a mobile phone, no, you know, there was no way to contact the people that I'd bought the stuff from, you know, I might have found a stall in Burma or in, you know, China or in Kathmandu or in somewhere out in, you know, Lombok or something, there was no way to to go back to these people.
0: So, so it was an opportunity for you to travel
1: back to these beautiful places yeah, and, and, and yeah, connect really that business
0: and, and your... Uh, your passion for for traveling
1: it was really came from the traveling not from the fashion you know and then um, you know the fashion the, the clothing became like okay so this is how i can do this. this is how we can sustain uh you know going backwards many times and you know and then you know how to all my friends were just finishing college at that time they'd all been at bristol uh, down at college in bristol and they were finishing and so i somehow had like a you know, half a dozen guys who are like, yeah, you know, this sounds great. You know, can we come and can we help you? And you know, uh, you know, and the scene was exploding, and I really needed all the help I could get. So it's like, great, okay, you, you're right, you come with me to Katmandu. You coming with me to Bali? You, you know, the, this is how we do the production. This is what we need. This is how you so, buy
0: so the be- fabric. So, so first you bought ready-made stuff, and and then you developed your own brand. Yeah. How, how pretty- was that? How was that working? You started with a logo or just. Uh- added that yeah. logo to your to the stuff you bought
1: yeah exactly we we, uh, we you know we put that we came up with the name and uh, you know made it the labels and and yeah exactly branded the stuff you know I already had a you know I guess I had a pretty clear idea of you know we we wanted to be known we wanted to, to have a recognizable label and we wanted to you know we we were selling to shops and you know by that point it's you know I'm selling to, I've been travelling all around the UK and done a few trade shows you know so we knew you know how the brand had to be set up mm-hmm. and uh you know I had a it had a fairly clear identity and um You know, people would come from all over the... You know, we were pretty famous. We, You know, people came from all over the world to the fashion shows in London and Paris, especially.
0: But that was when when the brand was already established some years? or So how long? uh, It it happened
1: very quickly, really, within within a year. You know, it didn't even take uh, one or two seasons. And, you know, because our stuff was so different. And, uh, you know, this was the time when, you know, if you imagine that the industry was really dominated by people like Levi's and... Pepe and, you know, these guys had very plain, simple clothes, American preppy look, you know, chinos and denim shirts. You know, that was it. Everybody basically wore kind of chinos and denim shirts and, you know, 501s or, So it was a very bland, you know, pretty plain uh, look that was dominating the industry. And, um, you know, and then we came with this crazy, colorful, you know, subculture clothing you know mm-hmm. and uh, you know much like you know punk or mods or ted's or you know different musical scenes that had gone before you know it was if, you know for young people it was about an identity and going okay you know this is we don't want to wear chinos and denim shirts we want to wear
0: Okay, and so from the stall thing, how long did you do that? So how long you developed your, your knowledge, let's say, or your like... Well, i you know- the stall
1: thing probably only went on for maybe a few months. Uh, ah, only? You know, yeah, you know, it didn't take me that long to sell all the stuff. You know, I was selling it pretty quick. And, um, you know, I'd say probably after about two or three months, I was really running out of stuff. And so, you know, needed to find a new stuff. and. Um, and I started. I started in London. We were manufacturing. We were making in London. Uh, we were recycling old Levi five hundred ones and making uh, jackets from from chopping up old jeans. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah, I remember this time. <laughs> so that's you know. So
1: that's where it came from. But even then, you know, the, there was no such word as recycles, mm-hmm. uh, upcycles. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, there, sure, sure. There, there was none of that. It didn't even occur to us that yeah. we should tell people. I oh, remember oh, that yeah, time when.
0: When the 501 thing was so big, you got 501s from the US, like from, from prisons or something, and it was yep. like sold everywhere, tons, yep. like like big numbers.
1: Well, to be honest, we started really before that because that we were able to get the 501s pretty cheap. By the time we finished, uh, you know, really selling that jacket, I realized that I probably would have been better off just putting the 501s in the storage, you know, because the price of them went like 10 times up in the space of uh, less than a year.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know?
1: Because the adverts came out and, the, and the, you know, the fashion caught on and suddenly everybody wanted second-hand fiber ones more than new ones, you know. There was a yeah. bigger demand for the old ones than there was for the new ones. And much more,
0: much more,
1: yeah. Yeah, so, um, but, you know, we it was fun. We found yeah. our way and, you know, these jackets were pretty crazy and you know, people liked them just for what they were. And, it, you know, it really wasn't until years later that people thought, you know, started talking about, oh, this is so good because it's upcycled or it's, you know, it's recycled and it's, you know. Yeah, so uh, in these...
0: In these early years, so your unique selling point was just you had a good eye for difference and f- what was possible in, in, in the production countries. You traveled and you brought that together and uh, had the idea to do your own production.
1: Yeah. Something that like was that? That was really it. Yeah. I mean, it was uh, just about, you know, what can we come up with that's different and it's, you know, difficult to copy, yeah. you know, you, you were aware that you wanted to make something that was difficult for other people to copy. Yeah. And you know what's you know how can we make it different? And if it's yeah, different, yeah. You've, you've got a chance because the shopkeepers were looking for something different. And uh...
0: so you you had no formal fashion experience, like you didn't went to a fashion school. How did you yeah, learn okay. the nitty gritty details about running a fashion company?
1: Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, <laughs> you, you you might say I still never did. <laughs> <laughs> I. Um, you made it up, you, you know, you just rolled with it. You just had to do what made sense and, mm-hmm. you know, there was no... But, for example, you know, you that the, the
0: sizes are in the right way, so so you have to take care that uh, a large is really a large, or how did you manage that? So, so I know things can go wrong, and in fashion, if if you do something, you can bet that, that things go wrong. And uh, so there needs to be some knowledge, like like... For quality? Yeah.
1: Well, we, I don't know, we managed as best we could. We, you know, we found people to help us and we, you know, we learned and we, mm-hmm. you know, we, we managed. I don't know. You know, I'm sure some of the stuff we made, you know, 25 years ago would uh, not be acceptable in shops today. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we made some mistakes and we learned along the way. And, uh, and, and in, what
0: were your major production countries at that time?
1: Well, everything started from, from Bali and then very soon afterwards from Kathmandu. And, you know, so we still today, in the same, a lot of the same people that we worked with all those years ago, we're still working with them today. So, okay. Everything Bali and Kathmandu. We did a little while in India. We had one season in Guatemala once. We, you know, we try here and there, but really all the way through it's been Bali and Kathmandu. Yeah.
0: So you have a long relationship with your, with your producers. Uh, yes. how How is the situation in, in, Kathmandu at the moment, there was this big earthquake, and I'm, so you have a direct contact. So,
1: Yeah, it's pretty awful. I mean, the situation is still very tough. They haven't uh, been able to get back to work yet. People are absolutely uh, busy trying to protect their properties. Many people have lost their houses. Um you know it's not in a good state at the minute so I should be there already I should already be in Kathmandu now but um, they keep telling me to delay because they you know they say look we really just it's not safe at the moment there's still mm-hmm. a lot of aftershocks every day and they you know they can't work They're, you know there's, there's just too many other things uh, they, mm-hmm. you know, to do and they say look you know don't come. We're worried for your safety, and we and we we don't want to waste your time. There's you know there's nothing you can do. Obviously, we've we've got a huge aid um, relief program going on at the moment, and we've been raising a lot of money here and uh, with our brand AIDS project. Um, but you know that's uh, you know all of that's going through professional uh, you know people on the you know well Alison yeah. Molson, who's so our for contact. our
0: listeners who want to help uh, on your website. I guess there's a link to.
1: There's a link to, it's called Brand Aid, um, yes. and so in a way, it's obviously one of my formative influences. So please, in the youth uh, our listeners,
0: after the show, please visit yeah. komodo.uk and donate a bit for the Brand Aid thing. Yes, people, please, komodo.co.uk, <laughs> and
1: then you click on the Brand Aid link, which is on the first page as you see it, and uh, you'll see... Uh, What's been what's been done, and uh, you can link through. We've got a, a Facebook uh, page as well for Brand Aid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can search Brand Aid, and that gives you all the uh, sort of uh, up to date information about what's being done with the money on the ground. But mm-hmm. uh, we've got a fantastic team in uh, in Katmandu. This this brilliant woman called Alison Marsden, who's actually a uh, well she's has English parents but she's born in Nepal and grown up in Nepal and she's uh, knows the country inside out speaks uh, fluent Nepali from her childhood and she's been working with Red Cross and various other agencies over the years and she really you know is the best person uh, that we know to to make sure that every every euro that we send every pound that we send is is used hundred percent for what it should be used for and uh, gets the most uh, effect that it can so, uh, we think that this is uh, the best, the best thing we can do, and it's you know I can do more to support. her whilst I'm in communication with everybody here, than if I was in Kathmandu myself. So, so that's the plan. But I do plan to be there in about ten days' time. So, I'm really just waiting for things to settle down a little bit more, so that when I go, I can be effective. You know, I want to, you know, well, we need to do what we do, which is get you know try and help people back to work and try and get the factory running, so that we can, you know. But the building is still intact. They're, most of them are some of them aren't but most of them are um, you know it obviously didn't destroy everything but it's um, you know what, what you see on the news tends to be the worst of it because obviously that makes more sensational mm-hmm. uh, reportage so there's still a lot that is still standing but it's just really the confidence of the people you know they're just shocked and mm-hmm. Um scale, you know, so I think you know another ten days things should calm down a bit, and then gradually we can we can help them back to work and get money flowing again and get you know I think to get take their minds off it and you know get people back into some kind of normality is, is mm-hmm. the best thing we can offer
0: mm-hmm. okay, yeah. so let's jump back again to your brand, so mm-hmm. we're at the end of the eighties, you sell your newly born brand which is at that time not yet like organic or something so you didn't start no. with it
1: no we didn't start with that but what we realized after a while was that the way that we produce in these sort of small family run factories um you know where we had a very close relationship with the with the families that ran them and the workers that ran them because we were in the factories every season we've spent months there you know what i mean we do, mm. you know basically just came back to the europe to the south to do the sales and see the customers each season and then we'd be back out in the factories making the making the orders and designing the next collection and this just seemed completely normal to me like i didn't how else could you do it but what we found out was that for nearly all of the bigger brands um the owners of these brands did never go to the fact or hardly ever go to their factories they have some agents and yeah. it's all you know, subcontracted, and you know, if, if, if they can make the products, uh, you know, twenty cents, thirty cents cheaper somewhere else, and they just move the whole production somewhere else. So most of these factories, the bigger factories, they're only working with a brand for a short time, and you know, there's there's very little. little there was very little relationship between the mm-hmm. the brands back in Europe and the and the factories over there in Asia. They hardly knew each other at all. So I thought this was very strange, and you know, it just wasn't how we did things Mm -hmm. so you know we realized there was a difference there and then and then you know i started to learn more about fabrics and how fabric is made i learned a lot about hemp um we started to find out about organic cotton and we you know we realized the sort of the damage that you can do by producing you know synthetic garments and you know you know that there was a two completely different uh ways of looking at this and so we thought well look we want to We don't want to cause pollution with our our products. We want to try and do it as uh, ecologically as we can. And of course, the way to work with the people to get the best from the people is to respect them and to work in a friendly, Mm -hmm. uh, collaborative kind of way. So that just seemed normal to us. And it was really only, you know, gradually over the years that we realized, well, not many other companies are doing it like this. Most companies do kind of the opposite. It's all made in China and it's done in huge factories and it's subcontracted 10 times. And, you know, there's Mm -hmm. very little relationship between the person that actually makes the clothes and the people that are, you know, putting their label on it. And, you know, so over time we realized there was a big difference. And, you know, and I suppose during that time began a kind of you know, this sort of idea that other companies were sort of starting to identify themselves from what we were doing, you know, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my friend Safia at People Tree is one of the one of the pioneers as well, who really kind of, caught, you know, learned to explain to the public, okay, look, this is how we're doing it, and this is why it's better like this, um, you know, and we, we realized, well, that you know, we've always done it like that, that's the only way we know how to do it, mm-hmm. we should also explain ourselves a little bit more to the public as to how we work, so, yeah, you know, so I, it evolved over over a period of time, but for mm-hmm. us it was just
0: and and the, the only way we knew how. Mm-hmm. One experience for, for a small brand. What's the difference in working with these small factory units? So, in your experience, were you able to change the quality to a higher level, or what would you suggest to a to a young designer today who wants to work with these? Uh, would you would you would you suggest the same way?
1: Well, you, you, you know, I think it, it, it's like a matchmaking. You know, you need to work with a factory that suits you. You know, you've got to be serious and uh, understand what kind of quantity you can sell because a factory wants to know that. That's the most important thing for them. Is what well, you know? Are you going to make a hundred t-shirts, or are you going to make a thousand t-shirts, or are you going to make ten thousand t-shirts? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's a different, and those are different factories. So, if you're going to make a hundred. Then you need to work in a you know in a small factory where they're happy to make a hundred. If, if the factory is expecting thousands and you only come with a hundred, then they, you know, they're like, oh, <laughs> that's that's you know. They, so it's they all
0: about expectation. Don't yes, about put the exp- expectations too high and find the right partner for your size. And, yes, exactly.
1: Uh, well, you need to be compatible. So you need to get along as individuals. You know, you good understanding and a good, uh, you know, that they you they understand your what you mean and your quality and how you need things doing and uh you understand them and what they need and you you know you you can both be uh good for each other because if it's if only you know they can be a good factory for you but if you're not good for them then you know then they can't keep it going they need to find people that are that are going to work for them you know just as you want your business to be successful they equally want their business to be successful mm-hmm. so you know it's um it's uh, yeah. it's like any other relationship it doesn't really change because they're over there in asia or you know it doesn't it's but not But you think
0: you think it's uh you need to to live in this area to develop the relationship because you mentioned before that that you were moving over to these places and you designed your your products there so i guess this makes things easier so you can Easily check back if, if if it's really what you like. I think I think my
1: backpacking really helped. You know, I just had a, I just i spent two years in Asia and I and I felt comfortable there and I and I was happy to be there and I you know I I knew you know it, Bali and Campendon were places where I'd spent a lot of time before, so I knew the, how the people are a little bit. And so I think you know it was a happy relationship. You know what I mean? I wasn't a complete stranger to them, and they, mm-hmm. they weren't complete strangers to me. So that that helped a lot. I think you've got to feel. Um, you know you need a relationship so you need to get along with each other and um, that was um, important and you know as I say you know listen you don't have to go all the way to Asia you can you can work in your own city or you know in your own country you know before I before I did that I used to also make things in the UK in Mm. Leicester even we started with the jackets was in the east end of London so Mm. um, you know it's it's really about how to manage your you know relationship with your suppliers Mm -hmm. you've you've simply got to learn to get along and that business is a two-way street and that you know you can you know it's all very well telling them oh you know I need better quality or I need faster or I need this I need that they you know they've got to say to you well look okay (laughs) you know we need this and we you know so you, you, you manage it together, and um, if if you can have that, then it then it can succeed and it can work. And it's the whole point of that that's sustainable business and that's fair business. And you know you've got to be fair. You've got yeah. to be you know it's all talk about fair trade. You know you have to be fair to start with. And if you're fair, then you can ask other people to be fair, and mm. they can see by your example, and they go okay, okay, okay. Look, you know he's he's doing this and he's contributing that, and he's paying like this, and you know they they support us, and so okay, we need to also. Uh, Mm -hmm. so so that's i think the the way to do it you have to set a good example first
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, mark during this time when you started 1988 and now we have 2014 there was also a big big changes in the fashion industry so it was also the time when fast fashion started to rise and Mm -hmm. uh Uh, In your experience, how has uh, the the whole business changed?
1: Well, yeah, certainly it's. um, I think it's the the the, the room in the marketplace for something completely different is is less so. The the actually young people are less brave. You know, fast fashion and the high streets have become so competitive. You know, really, I, I in my when we started out, the big multiple stores were not really on trend. You know, they were not cool. They were not sexy enough they right. were you know they were kind of it was a, sort of the place that your mum would take you to buy clothes for you you know when you were a teenager or you know instead of you know in school and they you didn't you know you, the independent funky boutiques in Carnaby Street or Camden or you know this is where you wanted to go when you when you got out of school in the school those days and you were sort of 15, 16 17 you know you didn't want to go with your mum to a big top shop or a, you know those kind yeah. of places. You, you know, top man, and you know, you, you you found your own way through the independence. If you were that, if you were that way, you know what I mean. But there was it was a minority of of kids that really wanted to look different and cared about how they looked. So I, I had that. I was definitely into my clothes and I liked to look different and I wanted to express myself through clothing. But there definitely was, uh, um, you know, it was more of a niche. Today, the the high street is so strong. You know, H H&M and M and so many huge stores that are just right on top of everything and they make this you know i think if you make a economic study you'll see that clothing is the only thing that in 25 years is actually cheaper today than it was 25 years ago you know everything else has gone up and the cost of clothing has actually gone down um and it's because it's now produced in these mega factories that churn out you know hundreds of thousands of garments every week and um, very cheaply, and they've, you know, they've learned how to produce things so cheaply, um, you know, Primark and, you know, so many of them. Mm-hmm. And that didn't, no, we didn't really have that then. So, you know, the, the world has changed. Um, and, you know, people's style has changed. You know, you don't see an awful lot of youngsters that are brave enough to really stand out and look different and basically say with their clothing, yeah, I'm I'm different and I'm, I'm into something... But I you you think it's mainstream. still possible
0: to look di- just with a look to 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 differentiate because no, these fast fa- fast fashion peoples are like like, like uh, urban outfitters is really uh, hey we're so different we are the or, or American apparel okay it's not fast fashion but uh, let's say everything uh, gets uh, is made into a big machine.
1: Yeah, I mean it's. Um yeah listen there's still stylish uh people and you know youngsters you, you know there's still a youth fashion scene but it's definitely i think it's not as you know it's much more conformist it's not so radical as it was 25 years ago um you know the clothes in maybe i don't know there's i can't say there's there's still a lot of imagination that goes into the things but it's it, you know, there's there's just so many more competitive brands, and there's so much more of it looking very similar, and it's uh, it's so much more difficult, I think, for uh, for youngsters today to have to, to look really different and have an individual look, mm-hmm. um, or you know, a, a subculture group that, that's got a look and still to be credible. You know, they they tend to yeah. Also, to with the rise of, safer, of the web, safer.
0: everything is visible. via... Uh, Instagram immediately yeah. so uh, yeah exactly there's nothing hidden anymore so the question is uh what are the options for ethical and sustainable and, and startups and what would w- would you suggest to a young founder today so our listeners are young startups and founders who want to start an ethical fashion brand what would, if you, if you would suggest one or two things what would be the the key things.
1: Well, I think, you know, try to establish your, your look, you know, try and um, you know, try and stand for something. You know, I think, you know, for the for the if you're trying to sell to well, shops or, or the consumers, you know, they want to go, oh this, you know, brand X, that they get it. They know what it looks like, how it fits, what's mm-hmm. their what's their style, you know, and you need to be fairly consistent, you know, I mean it's it's difficult because you're always trying to evolve and uh, you want to bring something new each season, but you know they, there's got to be some consistency. You've got to um, mean, you know, when they when they hear your name or they see one piece from you in a piece of press or something. Oh yeah, you know they they get it. They understand what your brand stands for yeah. and what your look is. I think you know if you can achieve that, then you've you know you've got a place in the at the table. You know, mm-hmm. you, you know, but if they don't, if it's changing too much from one season to another, and they don't really know what it what you're gonna what it is then mm, it's Mm. a little bit more more difficult it's a balance you need a little bit of surprise and ingenuity but you also need a little bit of consistency and uh identification you know people need to identify with you so i think that's the most important thing
0: and for your brand you still design in in bali or Kathmandu, or you do everything in london and and, or you still travel the
1: the design team is based here in our in our um, office in London, and um, you know we have design studio here, and then we basically take those designs with us when we go to the factories, or we we send them things to develop before we get there. But you know, so yeah, it's a it's a fusion. When we're actually in the in the factories itself, sometimes we adapt, we change a little bit. We see that our idea doesn't quite work out as well as we thought, and we, we, we this one looks better, and that's changed. You know, so you've got to be adaptable, but. Um, you know, principally the design work is a long a long process and, you know, it takes many months. So you, mm-hmm. you need to start really designing the next collection almost as soon as you've finished. You know, they, they literally finish one collection, have a break for a, you know, a little ho- break for a week or two, holiday or something, and then
0: come back and start
1: again with the next one. It does yeah. take many months to really yeah. get it right and consider everything that's going on and how to make make the collection stronger than before and how to evolve. And you know, mm-hmm. so yeah, but it's mostly done here and then taken with us over there. Okay.
0: Mark, on your website, you mention a lot of social projects and charities you support, and I guess you you met all these charities on on your travels. So could sure. you tell us a little bit about about this part?
1: Um, yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I we spend a lot of time in the, in these countries, and I've met a lot of people over the years that are uh, doing various projects out there and, um, you know, I think, you know, where we can support them, we should, you know, we're, as a brand, you know, we we basically earn our living from the public, you know, that people like our brand and they like where we come from and what we do and they support us. So I think, you know, part of that support is, you um, part of that support is also a kind of support for the country, you know, mm. for Nepal, for Bali. So, you know, I think where we can do, we find projects that are suitable for us. You know, again, it's like being a good match with a factory. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we're only, a, you know, we're not a huge corporation. Mm. We're, a, we're a small brand, so I can't go and support the UN or Save the Children or Oxfam mm. with any substance. But if I find, uh, you know, really good people that are doing a project that is the sort of size that we can manage, then... Mm-hmm. You know, great. We I think actually we could do something. We could make a difference here, You know, I think you know if you are charity or generally you know you want you want to make a difference. So if mm-hmm. I see an opportunity where we can support something, I can see that it's really direct. I don't want any of my money being wasted, or you know, it's too much spent on administration, or you know, I want to know that if I'm into a project that really mm-hmm. almost all of the money is absolutely going to. You know the children, or to the, to the project, or you know whatever it is that we we're trying to do. So we, you know, we do a few things that I'd like to do more. The more you know, the more successful our business is, the more we can do. And I'm, you know, I think it's a keeping a balance. You know, you go, okay, we had a we had a good year last year. We can do this now. You know, equally, you know, if you had a bad year last year, you've got to say, look, you know, the business is the money's got to come first in a way. If you stretch too far, if you try and overdo things and to, you know, you can fall down, so mm. you need to keep your your baseline sustainable. The commodity has to stay uh, strong, and then from that position, we can we can help and we can support charities or projects or things. So that's you know, it's it's a nice feeling to know that we've been able to do something. And I think the public expects it. I think they've got a right to expect it. I think you should expect your your brands to, to do some good work. You know what I mean? If you're if they're trying to tell you that they're you know that's their business is doing things in a good way then you should see that they're doing things in a good way so you know i think it's right that we do good projects and i think it's right that we show as much as we can you know what we're actually what we're doing so that's uh, you know it's not just an anonymous uh, private thing it's it's you know this you know i do things personally which is which is private but i you know publicly i think the money that comes from komodo it's not entirely our money. It comes from the general public, and yeah, we should yeah. show them what we can do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Mark. So, so you nearly made it for thirty years with your <laughs> brand Komodo. Uh, what's Ouch. ahead for the next thirty years? Oh my
1: God! <laughs> I hope it'll get easier, but I don't think it will. Um, I don't know. Listen, we, we we'd like to sustain it. We we we, uh, we you know we. You know, we've come this far, it's been a long journey. Obviously, there's younger people in the business now that work with us as well. Um, you know, I'm, you, you do get older, you do get tired a little bit. You, you know, you repeat the same process mm. each year. Um, but, you know, I'd like to keep the brand growing and keep it sustainable and, uh, you know, be able to carry on. I think, you know, a lot of people appreciate what we do and, yeah. um, you know, we appreciate the opportunity of being able to do it. So, you know, until I've got a better idea, um, mm. I think you know we should we should uh, do what we can. You know, I, I think the whole ish, you know industry of ethical fashion is facing so many challenges from that from the commercial world. You know, it is so difficult to compete when you can go to H and M and buy a dress for you know thirty euros or twenty five euros. Mm. Or you know, Primark, you can probably get a dress for twenty euros or fifteen. euros. You know, I don't know. You know how? You know, I can't even. Produce the fabric and print on it for for, for less than that. Really, by the time it comes to the shop, so there are challenges for us to to do that. But I think you know, yeah. as as people appreciate more and more the differences between how things are made and uh, that they want to support, you know, it's more like an artisan, you know, brand. Mm-hmm. You can say, you know, and people, you know, want to support uh, artisan type projects in the same way as maybe you would with music. You know, what I mean, you can you can listen yeah. to, you know. I mean, Pop sometimes it's the...
0: it's difficult to understand how a product is made because, like, like craft work and artisan work is, is somehow a bit lost. And uh, you think there's still possibilities to, to redevelop old craft skills, which are uh, especially available in these countries you work with.
1: Um, yeah, well, that's really what we've been doing is trying to keep, trying to keep the old skills. Um, you know viable you know that's how the whole thing really came about we saw how they made their traditional fabrics and we said well look if you can do this process to make a traditional you know very flowery old-fashioned sort of ethnic type design well why can't we just change the artwork and change the colors and and redesign it and you can use the same process to make Mm -hmm. something contemporary and more interesting so you know i think that's that you you have to always adapt the, the skills of the local people with the design that you want for your for your market and um you know, if we can, if we can uh, encourage them to do that, and I think you know, here in the in Europe, people are learning more and more, and are more conscious of how things are made, and they want things to be, they, they want to see some quality in how their products are made. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, that's the that's the combination that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Mark,
0: the last question: Who and what is inspiring you on a personal, day to day, base? Mm.
1: <laughs> Uh, oh, that's a difficult question um, I don't know really i mean i think uh I think you know it's a never ending challenge this business you know you always want to feel uh that you've you know you've done something you've got a contribution that's uh, appreciated i think you 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 know the appreciation of your customers of the industry at large of uh, you know, your your factories, I think, you know, when they go, oh great, you know, you, you, that was, you know, it, this this collection or this line or this fabric or this story came out really well and mm-hmm. now there's a really great order and, you know, we we really see, you know, all that effort that you put into making it just how you wanted it, you know, was worth it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there's, there's a reward from, from that. Um, You know, it's always great to see people wearing your clothes. It's always great to hear from shopkeepers when you go there, and the the stuff looks so nice in the shop, and they say, "Oh, it's selling really well, and everyone likes it." And you know, that's that's you know gratifying. Mm -hmm. Um, And sorry, it's just on my phone. Um, So, you know, there's. uh, I think that's the 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 main motivation. You feel that you're you know there's a build there's an excitement building for your brand you know i think certainly in germany now you know where we we are growing and we've got a good distribution and some really nice shops that are selling our stuff and we see that their their orders are growing a little bit each season Mm -hmm. you know you you get the feeling that the brand is growing and obviously you know germany is an exciting country and it's you know you know this is such a strong uh you know history of uh, fashion and uh you know, it's a country to grow in. It's a country to be successful in, and uh, you know, to be part of that is is very important. You know, I think you know, all of Europe's come through this very difficult economic kind of recession mm-hmm. the last, you know, quite a few years, and you know, feels hopefully we're coming out of it, and you know, it's it's great to be a part of that. And you, you do feel it when you're, you know, your sales guys and your agents and people and you go to the trade show in Berlin or in the Intertex or whatever, and, you know, you go, oh, yeah, this season was, you know, 30% better than last season. And, you know, we've got five new customers here and these guys have all doubled their order. and You know, so that's from a business point of view, that's very satisfying that you feel, okay, we're, we're doing something right. People are talking about you. Your brand is coming up. You know, so that's exciting. And I think, you know, that's, exciting from a business level but it's also exciting from a you know aesthetical level it's like okay well you know we're really kind of on a roll we're moving up we're, you know people take us more seriously they've got more respect for what we do and that's you know that's a motivating factor so I think okay. that's that's really why you do these things okay Mike
0: thanks a lot okay. and uh, it's really interesting and uh, yeah. I wish you all the best for all the right. next uh, 20 30 years and uh, <laughs>
1: Good I'll, see,
0: for, you. I'll see, for, see, you
1: there, see you there. See you there. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Thanks a lot. Good luck.
0: Thank you for listening to Greenblut FM. Greenblut FM is brought to you by www.greenblut.com. That's G-R-E-E-N-B-L-U-T.com. Please visit our site. Click the podcast section where you'll find the show notes with all links and information about this show. If you have enjoyed listening to our guests and think that others would also benefit from it, we would be extremely grateful if you would take a moment to leave a review for the Green Blue FM podcast at iTunes. We are dedicated to helping sustainable businesses grow. If you'd like to learn more about how to build a successful ethical business, just head over to our website where you can subscribe to a free weekly newsletter and get a bunch of good stuff to help you increase your knowledge. Thanks very much for listening. I'm looking forward to having you back for another episode soon. Take care. Bye-bye.